welcome to the March 2010 podcast of Ordinary Means. I'm your host, Sean Nolan, here with Matt Bowling. Hey, Sean. Hey, Matt. And our special guest today uh, was previously a guest on the show, Jason Stellman. Jason, welcome. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. Good. Good, good to have you on. Now, Jason is the, uh, if you don't remember from the previous podcast he was on, he is the pastor of Exile Presbyterian Church, uh, PCA Church. Tell me exactly where, Jason? It's in Woodenville, Washington, about 25 minutes from Seattle. Okay. And you are the author of the New York Times bestseller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Million, no lies million, on the air. No lies on the sold. air. <laughs> We've been, over the course of the past months on the podcast, talking about the issue of two-kingdom theology, and Jason has just uh, published a book. You haven't just written it. You've been written, writing it for a number of years. Um, Dual Citizens, published by Reformation Trust out of Ligonier Ministries. And, uh, Jason, you're here today to talk to us about this book. Now, I, gotta, I have to say right off the bat, this is... My favorite book that I've read about uh, from a two kingdom perspective yet, because is it the only book you've read from a two kingdom perspective? <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it is. It is you not. No, it's right. not the only book that I've read, but it is the first one I've read that is has is devotional and has references to Janine Garofalo. <laughs> well, those were my those were my two goals when I when I started. Out, you know. <laughs> Seriously, that is that is I I read and that is my you know that's why that is my favorite chapter is because of the mention of Janine Garofalo. How could you not not love that? Well, there are veiled references to her throughout, <laughs> but only one of them is explicit. So now is is a two kingdom view. Um, really, the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Janine Garofalo? <laughs> <laughs> some some would say that it is, yes. Okay. okay. Well, tell Jason, us. Are you mad? Did you want to throw something in here? Uh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, um, I, it's always curious to me, Jason, when we talk to authors. Um, why did you write the book? What's the, what's the need that you saw in in the church or in the world um, that you felt like a book like this needed to be written? Was it therapy for you? Was it a need that you saw out there? You know, what? Give us kind of the mind of the author. It's probably a little bit of all of that. Um, I think I talk about in the preface how, uh, as I was a student at Westminster Seminary in California, uh, the more I was studying um, the New Testament and the eschatology of the New Testament, especially the whole... Uh, already not yet dynamic that I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, as this goes on. Um, the more the more I kind of looked at that and, and the new covenant that sort of provides that framework, it became clearer and clearer that almost every issue that we talk about in theology uh, and in biblical studies, and in, he's talking about the contemporary church and worship and culture and all that, all of this stuff is affected by the eschatology of the new covenant. All of this stuff is affected by the already-not-yet dynamic, whether mm-hmm. we're talking about Sabbath observance, worship, how to live in the world, uh, how to think about uh, various other issues. It all, just, it all is connected at that level. And so part of the, the process was just trying to um, scratch an itch you know, that I had myself of, of just needing to look through these lenses at all these seemingly disconnected things and, and try to make sense of them in that way. Mm-hmm. 
So that would be the kind of the, your side of it. What about uh, what did you see the need out there of people in the church or in the world? I don't I don't care about other people's needs, uh, Matt. Just my oh, own. okay. <laughs> well, okay, so, that's fine. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, kidding aside, that was a joke. Um, there, there. I mean, Christ and culture issues are huge. These are the things that need to be talked about. I think we've moved beyond. A lot of the, you know, big hot button issues of times past, like, you know, lordship salvation or holy laughter and all these things we we're talking about 10, 20 years ago. I think what's on people's minds is, is how to navigate these waters of being a Christian trying to live in, in, in this present age. How do we, how do we do that? How do we chart that course? Um, kind of the in the world, but not of the world thing. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that um, you know, I think that this is that's what this book is trying to address. And you address it from from a number of different angles, um, which is again, I was I was not in, I was not joking when I said this is my favorite book written from a two kingdom perspective, because you you really do hit on uh, a lot of different issues rather than taking one um, key focus. Uh, like say the say the ordinary means, and just spending your whole time saying why people need to be um, involved in in preaching sacraments and prayer, you you branch out. Um, you have a chapter on worldliness. You have a chapter on being countercultural and what that means. You have a chapter on um, uh, where's where's the chapter? You have a chapter on Sabbath. Um, so you have you're addressing so many different issues, and, and you're and you get at. Um, I think I know this from knowing you, but you you sort of have a, a soapbox against um, a reformed arrogance, is what I like to call it. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm talking about, but sort of reformed yeah. guys who who think they've I have a friend who's got a shirt now that says, uh, you know, it says you. Um, you people who try to tell me what to, you know, what to do really annoy those of us who know what to do. Yeah. You know, that shirt, I can't remember the, what the phrase is, but um, <laughs> it's a good shirt. <laughs> it's a good shirt. Um, yeah, don't quit, don't quit your day job there, Sean. Yeah, well, I didn't design the shirt. I'm just, I told you at the beginning of the podcast, I'm tired today. So, um, you know, but you've got a, uh, you know, you don't like to see. Uh, reformed people being just stuck, mired in their theology to the point that it's not having an effect in life. I mean, that's that's why you're a pastor. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's why half the book is um, dealing with the already not yet as it applies to life. It's not just about worship. The subtitle is Worship and Life Between the Already and the Not Yet. And, um, you know, I don't want to just talk to... Um, I mean, on some level, obviously there's a certain level of, uh, you know, theological knowledge that's presupposed on the part of, of me toward those who read it, but I didn't want it to be something that was just purely, uh, seven guys talking to each other. You know, I wanted it to be something a bit more broad because, like I said, um, you know, the Christ and culture issues are relevant for everyone. You know, if the book were about, uh, Calvin's doctrine of the mystical presence of Christ in the Supper, 
um, it wouldn't it wouldn't be appealing to all that many people outside of our own little world. Yeah. Whereas when we're talking about uh, worldliness, when we're talking about worship, when we're talking about uh, the vanity of life under the sun, divorced from uh, eternal concerns. These touch these touch upon what everybody's thinking about, and, mm-hmm. and so I wanted yeah. to kind of break out of that little little mini reformed mold and talk more broadly. So you you see everybody is struggling, every Christian struggling with this tension between the, the already and the not yet. Why don't we start out? Why don't you? Um, Explain the already not yet to us in case we've got some listeners that are going, what's this already not yet thing you're throwing at us? But then yeah. could you could you move into what is the – what's that real-life tension for the, for the Christian? Okay. Well, um, thankfully, already and not yet mean in, in theological discourse what they mean in everyday discourse. Uh what is already, we're talking about God's promises, and we're talking about the things that God promised, going all the way back to the very beginning, but, but mostly through Abraham and carrying on through the Old Testament into the New Testament, all these great saving promises that God makes. Um, how, how many of those promises, or to what degree are those promises already fulfilled, versus uh, how many of them, or to what degree are we awaiting their fulfillment? That would be the not yet. Um, under the Old Covenant, when the people of God were um, under Moses, they were largely looking forward to the fulfillment of promises in the future. And so it, there was a whole lot of not yet for them. A lot of God's promises for them were not yet a reality in their own experience. And the expectation on the part of people... Uh, certainly on the part of John the Baptist and on the part of Jesus' disciples and, and certainly the Pharisees uh, during the time of Christ was that the Messiah would come and basically get rid of all the not yet and bring all the already, that he would immediately fulfill all the promises that God made to people in time past right away. He would come with, with judgment in one hand, salvation in the other, usher in the age to come, judge and destroy uh, God's people's enemies, you know, and usher in eternal uh, shalom and bliss. Package what deal, happened, everything all at once. Yeah, everything all at once. Yeah. You know, right. at this time, will you restore the kingdom to Israel, they ask in Acts chapter 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, John the Baptist, sitting in prison, sending messengers to Christ, saying, are you really the one, or should we look for someone else? And it, it's People significant. To wonder. That's significant for John 3 as well, because you have Jesus saying, I did not come to judge. Which is right. would have would have sounded very odd to their ears. Yeah, because that's exactly what they were expecting. Uh, in fact, interestingly, it, when Jesus kicks off his public ministry in Nazareth uh, in Luke four, he stands up to read from Isaiah the prophet, but he stops at a comma. He says that he had has come, you know, to give sight to the blind and, and to proclaim liberty to those who are bound, uh, and uh, to to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stops, whereas if you go back and read Isaiah, there's a comma there, and it goes on and says, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he was even hinting at the very outset that Hmm. um, I'm not coming to consummate this union. I'm coming to inaugurate a kingdom, to begin it, um, but not to end it. It's not going to be fulfilled yet. And so we, under the New Covenant, are... um, experiencing what some call semi-realized uh, 
eschatology. In other words, we have a whole lot of stuff that's fulfilled for us, and we participate in the age to come by virtue of the spirit of the future who indwells us. And so we partake of what Paul calls the power of the resurrection, but we're not yet experiencing uh, with our eyes, seeing with our eyes, or experiencing in our lives the full reality of those promises. And so that's, that's why there's that tension uh, between the already and the not yet. We, and that full, um, that full reality comes when Jesus returns a second time, ushers yeah. in the resurrection of everything, we get a new heavens, new earth, that's when we get it all. That's when faith becomes sight, yeah. That's right. when we're no longer waiting, uh, we're no longer patiently enduring, but we're enjoying experientially and visually uh, the, full, uh, the, the kingdom of God in all of its fullness and all of its glory. But for now, it's cross-bearing. For now, it's exile in the wilderness, bearing a cross with a promise and, not, and a pledge for the future. But, um, but largely from our own you know, sensory experience, um, it, it's, it's not yet. We're, we're living by faith, not by sight. We're carrying a cross instead of wearing a crown. And, and, and so that's kind of the tension that lies at the back uh, of the entire book. So I'm trying to look at all this seemingly disconnected random stuff through this lens, this lens I've been talking about for the last few minutes. Which, you're, the, the name of your church is Exile Presbyterian, and obviously it's for that same reason um, mm-hmm. that you're viewing everything in that light. Uh, Matt and I were talking about this before the podcast. How would you, how much would you say that a Christian today is an exile, uh, is an alien? And how much are they an ambassador? I think that, that those two terms sort of get at this tension that we're talking about. That, we're, that we are living as aliens, uh, as citizens of heaven, but we're also called to be, uh, we're also to have some sort of role as an ambassador. How do you, how do you see that tension relating? Well, I think, um, I think that's a good question. I think, uh, on the one hand, we might want to have, you know, um, an exegetical discussion about 2 Corinthians 5 and Paul's use of ambassador and whether he's talking about himself as an apostle and his fellow apostles, or whether he's talking about all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that aside, um, I think that we, as, uh, as God's people, certainly um, there is an element of both, because uh, we come to, and I talk about this in the book, in the first section of the book, uh, we come to covenantal assembly. We are summoned, we are gathered before uh, God's heavenly throne, uh, as Hebrews says, in worship on the Lord's Day. And we are uh, addressed, undressed, and redressed in Christ's righteousness by means of uh, the word and sacraments and worship, the means of grace. And, um, and then we go out into the world with the ministers, having, the minister pronounces his benediction, which is Jesus blessing his people by means of his covenant ambassador, and the people of God are sent out into the world not to, you know, retreat into this little ghetto or mm-hmm. to, you know, circle the wagons and, you know, put up the barbed wire and keep the culture out. Mm-hmm. That's, not our, that's not our goal at all. That's why a lot of people who hear about the two kingdoms um, misunderstand the, what we're saying as if we're talking about retreating you know, away from the world. 
in fact, I would argue that the whole two kingdoms thing legitimizes Earth and, and legitimizes the believer's participation in Earth for its own sake. And I talk about that in the chapter on worldliness. Um, that something so doesn't have it, to be Christian to be significant. Right. Just the fact and, that and, it's and created so, is Myers would Ken Myers would say it has givenness because it's created. Yeah, and, and creation yeah. is good. Creation is uh, situationally um, fallen, but it is uh, by its by its very nature, it's a good thing. God pronounced that everything was you know tov ma'od. It's it's very good uh, after He made everything, and so we go out and, and participate in the world, but we never leave our faith behind. We go everything we do. Um, we bring our Christianity with us. And so even if we're in a, taking a course in university or uh, watching a film or attending a concert or reading a book in a book club or whatever kind of cultural engagement we're involved in, um, we're always representing uh, the kingdom that truly claims our allegiance, the kingdom of Christ. And so in that sense, you can probably say we're you know, maybe ambassadors with a little a, in mm-hmm. a different kind of way that, than a minister or an apostle was an ambassador. Kind of like preaching with a small p, you know, that everybody enacts, everybody disperses, and they went preaching the gospel. And most all of us don't want to say that's exactly the same thing as what happens from the pulpit on Sunday. But there is some, yeah. some proclaiming that everybody did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, same sense, yeah. No, I think that's helpful. Well, you, t- you talk throughout about the, the whole countercultural thing, that the church as church is countercultural. Yes. Um, we get we get it backwards, I think. In in uh, I'm using we very broadly. Kind of evangelicalism in America kind of gets it backwards. In, in that we um, we want to be during the week. Let's say Monday through Saturday. Uh, we want to be as countercultural as we can by you know listening to our radio stations and wearing our clothing labels and speaking our language and watching our films and all of that. But then on Sunday, we flip-flop and want to be as non-threatening and as worldly as we can so that the unbelieving target audience that is there in our church isn't offended by anything we do. Well, this is your Gene Garofalo comment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's the irony, is that the liberals in the culture war uh, are often the conservatives in the worship war, and vice versa. So evangelicals, for all their talk about family values and conservatism uh, during the week, they're as liberal as Janine Garofalo on the Lord's Day because they want to um, they want to break off those those cords and cast them from us. You know, they want to they want to um, dismiss and disregard um, the the trappings of the worship of our fathers and all of the tradition and, and liturgy and ritual that used to characterize worship. Back when uh, Leave It to Beaver was was prime time, and we want to do something new. We want to we want to chart new ground and, and find new uh, new forms and new territory, which is exactly what liberals do in the culture war. So it, it's sort of ironic that that uh, the most liberal people uh, in the culture war are often conservative on Sunday, like mainline Lutherans, for example, who have very high liturgy, whereas. Um, you know, people who are very conservative Monday through Saturday are very, very liberal on Sunday. And so what we do on Sunday is we, um, you know, we become, you know, uh, very concerned with, with not being different from the world, even though we're different from the world the rest of the week. What we ought to do, I think, 
is to allow the Lord's Day to be that time when we can be countercultural. I mean, there, there's no better time to, to sort of celebrate our otherworldliness and, and oddity than on the Lord's Day, because that's when we're giving the most clear and profound expression to our heavenly citizenship. Whereas during the week, well, we, we, we have jobs, we, we have, we're, we're students, we, uh, you know, we uh, tune up cars or, you know, perform root canals, whatever our job happens to be. We're out in the world, and that's the time to engage the culture, not Sunday. Sunday's the time to be otherworldly and to give expression to be engaged to our, by God. Yeah, to be engaged. To, exactly. Yeah. You know, and so Res- I think... Resalinated, uh, Horton would say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think properly understanding when we're to be countercultural and when we're to be cultural, when we're to be otherworldly, when we're to be worldly, is part and parcel of uh, understanding the New Covenant ethic as seen through the lens of the already-not-yet dynamic. So you see, I like the term you give to this in the books, subversive Sabbatarianism. <laughs> that yeah. we are, that is how, a, a primary way that we are to be countercultural is, is by, is by meeting as believers and doing what God calls us to do and, and worshiping in the ways God calls us to worship Him. Um, do you see that in, in, in the bigger picture? I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar, you remember the old Blue Laws? Where your stores had to be closed on Sunday, do you do you see that having an effect? I mean, I th- I think about we've got the mega church down the street, and I think in my head I say, you know, what if that church, which is trying really hard to not be offensive, like you're saying, trying hard not to be offensive on Sunday, what if they actually preached a um, you know, a trust in God that got people. You know, to the point where nobody in their church of however many thousand um, were doing some of the more uh, culturally deprived things. Um, you know, and you get into a situation like you had years ago. You know, bars closing down, things like that. Do you do you see that our sabbatarianism having an effect that direction? Well, I think that I think that worship on the first day of the week. It is one of the main, if not the main way, ways that we express our, our difference from the world, our, uh, our refusal to march to the beat of the world's drum. Um, so there's no question that, that using the Lord's Day as a means to sort of um, capitulate to the culture or take our cues from the culture in worship to, to prove how hip and relevant we are, it's just a, it's the, you know, it's Esau selling his birthright for a bowl of beans. It's just inexcusable. Hmm. Now, what I, what I talk about in the, um, in the chapter on the Sabbath, though, is that observance of the Lord's Day traditionally in America has always been, I, I think there's been a, a bad rationale um, to, to bring about a, a good idea. The good idea being, uh, you know, maintaining the Sabbath, worshiping on the Lord's Day. Um, the rationale, however, has often been to reinforce America. We're mm-hmm. going to end up like those French, you know? We're going to end up like those liberal Euro- Europeans if we don't maintain um, Sabbath as a people, meaning as American people. And we don't want to slip into cultural obscurity. We're going to fall under and, God's theocratic judgment. Yeah. 
as a nation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and uh, you know, just like you know those uh, Canaanites across the pond. And it, I, I, so I argue in that chapter, we ought to um, take the Sabbath very seriously. It's a huge part of Reformed piety and spirituality. But we don't do it to reinforce America. We do it to subvert and, and challenge America. And uh, Horton has a great line in, in one of his books that I quote in, in mine, where he says that by, by this kind of Lord's Day observance, we plant a flag in Times Square. And, and basically boast in our refusal to capitulate to the um, to the gods to amuse us, and, and that you know, so that, that's what I'm trying to do: bring in that element of, of subversiveness. That the Christian Church has always meant to be a, a kind of subversive uh, influence in the culture. That we're not here just to put an exclamation point at the end of uh, of everything the world says. Or, or footnote good advice from Oprah with quotes from Jesus and his friends. But we're meant to call into question the values of this passing age. And worshiping on the Lord's Day is, is one of the primary ways that we do that. And you had a line in the book, and Sean and I both really enjoyed the worldliness chapter. Um, I'm just. Uh, I'm getting a lot of insight into you guys just by the fact that you just love that chapter on worldly. Well, you know, and it, you know, it's the Jason. Some of it's the timing. We can talk about this um, tomorrow night when we get together. But I just preached this past Sunday um, on the positive use of wine, uh-huh. uh, which was probably one of the most nerve-wracking sermons I've ever preached. Isn't that odd? Okay. Where we wouldn't get nervous about a sermon where you know it's all about the gospel and the offense of the cross. You, you know, Matt. Nervous. You know how you fix that. Just oh. just to have a, a glass of wine before you preach, <laughs> but it, it, you know it was it was nerve wracking because um, you know we have a mixed body of on views uh, on that and trying to you know be considerate and compassionate to those who think they understand what the Bible has to say about wine, but they've not they've not. Uh, you know, tapped into the history of the idea. They don't necessarily know all the history of how their family influenced them in that way, and all that kind of stuff. But what's interesting about it is um, Sean and I are both very partial to positive views of creation. Uh And um, I think that that's one of the reasons that that we both were attracted to um, not only what you said in the book, but even to what you just finished, is that that, um, on Sunday – you know, we're sort of re-energized in terms of our citizenship towards heaven, so that we can go out and and faithfully pronounce creation good and and be actors and ambassadors within it during the week. Um, and that's a good that's a good both and for people to get. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's helpful. I love what you said, the, the last line of the worldliness chapter. You say, if we desire to give authenticity to our citizenship, both of this age and the age to come, then we need to be aware of enjoying Earth too little, mm-hmm. as well as enjoying it too much. That certainly yeah. we can have troubles with idolatry, no doubt about it. Uh, but we can also have kind of an idolatry of our asceticism, too, that, that well, we can yeah, be that's... so consumed <laughs> yeah, well, I, I kind of got that idea from from reading Chesterton's Orthodoxy, you yeah. know, because he talks about um, we have to be aware of false devils as well as false gods. You know, he talks a lot about the pagan and the Puritan, and yeah. how pagans find uh, innocent things to be 
uh, or rather, pagans find uh, guilty things to be innocent, and Puritans find innocent things to be guilty. And uh, you know, and, and so he talks a lot about the fact that we need to beware not just of false gods, but of false devils of turning perfectly legitimate things into little demons. Hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if you. Um, I, I just posted a post on my my blog. I've got a new blog, uh, CreedCodeCult.com, and I posted a thing that you know, a clip, a YouTube clip of Mark Driscoll. And this is the sort of diatribe. Mark Driscoll is the pastor of Mars Hill Church uh, here in Seattle. And he, he's got this whole diatribe on the, the film Avatar, how it's the most demonic, satanic thing he's ever seen. And, and you know, on and on and on he's going. And I couldn't help but think about Chesterton's quip about finding, uh, finding false demons lurking behind uh, every tree, you know, and... That's kind of what I'm trying to demythologize a bit in, in that worldliness chapter, is this idea that any cultural product is a threat to, to the Christian. Because it's just not. And I think it's immature and it's the weak, the weak way of looking at, at the world, uh, to use Paul's term, to think that way. That same uh, paragraph, Matt, that you just read from a second ago, uh, Jason, you've got this quote, you say, um, uh, Pilgrim, Pilgrim theology's insistence on the tension between the already and the not yet demands that a saint be both otherworldly and worldly. And then you you make a quote. I don't have right here who the quote. Oh, the quote is from you too. Um, Head in heaven, fingers in the mire. Mm. Um, or in the words of another poet, uh, who looking at the footnote was Sting. Um, the face of a sinner in the hands of a priest. So both of those, the, the head and heaven, fingers in the mire, face of a sinner, hands of a priest, um, relate that, because I'm thinking about this, I, I really like what you said about pleasure and that we don't, uh, we don't create false devils, we don't become Puritans in the sense of making our um, feeling guilty about things that really are good, that God has made to be good. Um, but do you think it's easier for Christians to validate pleasure than it is for Christians uh, to actually just get out there and get our hands dirty? I'm not sure. Uh, could you ask that, ask that a different way? I'm not sure okay. I'm getting your meaning. I'm just, I'm just wondering if, um, theologically, we love to talk about, um, you know, made in the image of God, God... Uh, creation ordinances, the fact that God has made everything. Uh, Matt likes the phrase, the, the two books, you know, the book mm-hmm. of the Bible and the book of creation. Um, and and I'm, I'm with that all the way. I think that there is, you know, great value in creation and we should love the things that God has made and we should find pleasure in them. And, I, and I, I'm all for taking pleasure in a good book, um, you know, even a book written by a non-Christian but well well-written. Um, you know, or taking pleasure in a good movie. But I, I, I wonder if, and since we're talking about this chapter on worldliness, if one of our temptations is to theologically validate pleasure mm-hmm. and say it's okay for Christians to enjoy themselves. I think that's right. easy, I guess is right. what I'm saying. That's the easy theological thing. The more difficult theological thing when we're talking about two kingdom versus transformational uh, living is how much are Christians to be 
getting their hands dirty in the world with non-believers or just getting their hands dirty in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's hard because I don't, I don't think we like that, particularly in an American culture where we're very comfortable right. and yeah. everything is provided for us. I'm not sure we like that idea of, like you said at the beginning, this is, this is the time for cross-bearing. Doesn't that mean this is the time for self-sacrifice? Yeah, yeah, and, and Chesterton, there, there's a great line um, by Chesterton in that same section that you're referring to. I don't, I don't have it in front of me, but uh, he talks about, you know, Chesterton's view uh, of the saint is that he is, is very, uh, he's very worldly, not in the sinful sense, but in the sense that he, he's not afraid to get his hands dirty, to roll up his sleeves, you know, and, and, and do earth, and, and to... Uh, and to do the difficult work of um, cultural engagement or loving of one's neighbor. But I think this is connected with the stuff at the beginning of the book about worship. Because I think if we, and I was just, I, I was just having coffee yesterday with the guy, uh, the, the, the uh, a new family in our church, they've just come a few times, and uh, you know, I met with the husband uh, yesterday for coffee. We're talking about this very thing. It's so... It's so easy for Christians to be um, so ingrown and so self-focused that uh, all we're ever doing is is serving one another. All we're ever doing is, um, you know, we're, we're at church every night of the week. There are so many, so many, you know, little Christian ministries and, and ministry and service opportunities happening at the church that. Um, your next door neighbor's spouse just got cancer, and you don't even know about it mm. because you're too busy, mm-hmm. um, you know, working in the in the Christian bookstore. You're too you're too busy, um, you know, at the at the midweek Bible study or the you know Saturday morning prayer meeting or whatever whatever it is that we're doing. Um, we're so when we have a bad understanding of what's happening in worship, namely that uh, what we ought to think about worship as is God serving us by means of his, his ambassador, by means of his minister, so that we can go out and serve our neighbors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The problem is, when we have an every-member ministry view of, of, of uh, the church, at, where we're always tiring ourselves serving Jesus by working at the church and being at church all the time, we never get our hands dirty. We never, we never love our neighbor uh, and love God by loving our neighbor, um, because we're too busy, um, you know, we're too busy with our with our ministry. Kind Instead of the community of the center ministry, model of church, open every night, always something yeah. going on, and that's where I spend yeah. my time. Instead of letting the minister do the ministry to you, so that you can go out and love your neighbor in Christ's name, when we when we don't understand that, then we we end up being of the world but not in it, and mm-hmm. and, and you'll never ever uh, get your hands dirty that way. Um, but instead, you might sit around and, and theologize and pontificate about uh, how Christians can um, theologically justify having a good time or enjoying Earth. But you'll never actually get out there and do anything because you're too busy. Um, you, you know, you're too busy in your in your church world uh, with 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 Christians and no one else. That's a, that's a great you're, point. You have a quote on just the previous page that we were just looking at before the worldliness chapter that I, that I wanted you to explain a little bit because I, I found it intriguing. 
You ask, how much political, personal, social, or theological reflection is just waiting to transpire at the local pub or coffee house if we would only make the time for it? Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, you dedicate the book to this Upper Crust Theological Society, which I'm assuming is what some guys you went to seminary with? Uh, yeah, it's a secret society, Matt. I'm not allowed oh. to talk about it. Yeah, well, you know, I, okay. Um, I wondered yeah, if I was going to be initiated, you know. I, uh, I dedicated my first book to the Masons, so. Uh, very nice. But, yeah. it, you know, it, do you view that, I mean, is that, you think, one of the ways that Christians are, are missing it is because we're so, if you will, inward towards the Christian community that we're not out there at the pub or the coffee house talking there Politics, personal yeah. stuff, social and theological stuff. You know, we're we're trying to take and talk about the world's things in the church, and then we're not out there with real people in the world at all in relationships. Yeah, and and part of um, part of my uh, part of my target there in that section of the book. You know, part of who I'm trying to you know. Um, challenge is not just the frenetic activity of the Christian church, you know, in which we're always, you know, uh, involved in something every night of the week. And, you know, a father hasn't tucked his kids into bed, you know, in six months because they're either at Awana or he is at the men's study. Um, but I'm also, I'm also trying to challenge the kind of what I think an imbalanced or a warped view of what it means to be a a person made in God's image, uh, according to which we um, allow uh, work to become this sort of inordinate uh, and just way too big and consuming factor in our lives. I think at the time when I was uh, when I was writing that chapter, I was reading um, a book by Tom Hodgkinson, an English guy, called How to Be Idle, and I, I quote from it in the book. Uh, and, and this guy, you know, he he basically uh, he started a a whole journal or a newspaper called the Idler, and their little symbol is a snail. <laughs> he quotes he quotes a lot from Chesterton and a lot of other you know great you know great saints and mystics and uh, theologians you know down through the ages, all of whom really valued um, mm. stopping, slowing down, uh, taking it easy, and, and just. Making time to give expression to your humanity in other ways besides toiling at your job for 75 hours a week, uh, which, by the way, makes your wife and kids bitter at you. But instead, you know, we, we need to we need to be um, okay with 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 the idea of perhaps working less and um, giving expression to God's image in us in ways outside of the workplace, like our family, like our friends. Um, you know, and, and and if you're doing it at a pub, all the better because you're out there with people uh, who often will eavesdrop over here. If you're talking about something, you know, um, biblical or or um, you know something very personal from a from a Christian perspective, I mean, there's just all kinds of all kinds of ways that that conversations and engagement with the culture can happen if we just go to church less. I hate, you know, it sounds bad to put it that way, but... But you, you know, have maybe, a very high view of, of the Sabbath, which is why you can say that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I, think, I think a two kingdoms view properly exalts the kingdom of Christ, and by doing that, it properly exalts the kingdom of man also. As opposed to, I think, in a transformationist perspective... 
I don't think culture is ever really legitimate because you're always trying to change it. And, and your only real justification for engaging it is to redeem it and, and, and to alter it um, instead of sometimes allowing yourself to just go to a ball game and, and, and watch the Mariners lose. Um, that was a joke. Um, <laughs> because, because it's fun, you know, because you like it. Uh, I, I think I think we can, ironically, in the same way that in the same way you can devalue grace, if you put grace everywhere, including before the fall, and that's a whole different topic. We talked about yeah, that yeah. the last time I was on. Yeah. But we can also devalue, we can devalue um, culture. I think, even though we think we're exalting it or affirming it, by always trying to transform it. I don't know if that makes any sense, but but I think the two the two kingdoms view properly um, legitimizes both cult and culture in a way that I think is very biblical and healthy. You mentioned a key part of culture, which is the family. Um, maybe you could say a little bit more about, because um, Matt and I had, had noticed uh, you had a section in your chapter on Reformed piety on, on raising kids. What is, a, what is a Christian father or Christian mother's calling uh, so far as as raising kids, and how does that relate to to our other friendships? Yeah, well, I think um, as much as we want to um, pawn off the, the the nurture of our kids to the church or to the school, because you know we got they got youth group, they've got Awana, they've got. Uh, you know, they've got their Christian school they go to or whatever, you know, let them do the work. Um, I, I think biblically it's, it's very obvious that it's the responsibility of the, of the parents and primarily the father to, you know, to raise up, to nurture, admonish, and train his kids. However he may choose to educate them um, is beside the point. I think the important thing is realizing whose responsibility primarily it is. And... You know, it's just the statistics are astounding how, how um, the more churched you are in evangelicalism as a child, the, the, the higher the likelihood that you'll be unchurched by the time you get to university. Um, You're kind of clearly, burned out on it by then. Yeah, something's not working. And hmm. I think that, um, you know, the, 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 the church and, and the ministry of the church can kind of undercut uh, and even uh, undermine the family when, with good intentions, it schedules stuff every night of the week for moms, dads, youth, uh, and everyone else in between, to the point where you're never, you never see your family, you never eat together. Um, so you've got, you've got the world with, with its own pressures on the, on the husband who's, you know, let's say he's working at Microsoft or Boeing and he's under a lot of pressure and he can barely get out of there in under 60 hours a week. So you've got that pressure. But then you've got the church adding to the pressure by, um, you know, subtly communicating that you're not really a part of the body. You're not really a part of the church unless you're here at the Tuesday night thing or unless you're at the, uh, you know, the Sunday afternoon thing or the, the Saturday morning thing. And so you've got attack on the family coming from all sides, even the church, to the point where um, you're just letting the youth group culture uh, raise your kids. And let me tell you, um, that's not a good thing. Uh, I know I know families personally who would say, 
my kids just became so carnal when I put them in youth group or when I sent them to Christian school. Um, you know, and I, we've actually, you know, they've, they'd say, we've actually decided to start trying to raise them ourselves as their parents rather than letting the school or the youth group do it because um, they just, it's just counterproductive. Mm. Well, you've said, um, you say here in the book that the, the normally... Uh, the Christian faith, normally speaking, is passed on from parents to children. That that's the normal process uh, that's going on. And I think you mentioned the statistics. I think there are plenty of statistics that say, you know, absent families, absent father, absent mother is is where um, are those kids that do leave the church later on. Mm-hmm. They don't have that strong... Uh, model in their life. So obviously the the youth group, and even a youth group in a Christian school, can't provide that model. I, I'm I'm sure there's cases. Um, you know, I think Matt and I are both examples of it, where um, where things really just went really bad in adult life because of poor poor upbringing. Is that what you mean? <laughs> ah, very funny. Uh, no, but where we were both, um, uh, we were both two parachurch kids. Parachurch kids. And it was uh-huh. because that there was something we weren't getting it at home, right, and because right. there was something that was being offered outside the home. Um, you know, the parachurch church does something for those non-Christian kids, mm-hmm. um, which I'd love to see the church doing more of. Yeah. Um, how how you do that is is um, is is a matter of where you locally are and what your church looks like. And maybe that's that's a good next question. Is I'm curious what. What do you? Obviously, at Exile, you uh, you don't do a lot <laughs> because you want um, because you want people engaged with their family and with their neighbors and and that's our motto. Actually, uh, Exile Presbyterian Church, we don't do a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, there you go. Um, but what what else are you doing? Um, how are you encouraging your congregation to? to be involved in the culture? Yeah, well, um, I, one of the main things we do is uh, elder visitation, you know, which we, we just had a, a meeting yesterday, um, uh, some of our elders, and w- one of the guys was talking about um, the comment that he gets when he visits families in our church. We kind of break up all the families uh, and, and uh, basically assign them to elders so that, you know, Ideally, each family would get a visit from an elder every six months or so. And, and, but what they always say, the families, when you come to their house, is we've never had a, uh, we've never had an elder in our house, you know. And they've been mm-hmm. maybe church members for twenty years somewhere else, but this is the first time we've ever had an elder in our house, you know, which is just bizarre because what I mean, it, what's an elder supposed to do? I mean, one of the main things he's supposed to do is visit people, you know, and. and go to their homes and pray with them and talk to them and encourage them and challenge them and all that stuff. The stuff that Paul says he did for three years in Ephesus in Acts 20. Mm-hmm. I, I admonish you publicly and house to house. And so when it comes to, you know, we have all kinds of families who are uh, so new to Christianity and, and certainly new to Reformed theology. And, and so they have no idea, what, like, what, what am I supposed to do as a dad or as a mom, you know? Uh, we've got a family, you know, the, the mom and the dad are the very first Christians in their in their entire families. Like both of their families, they're the you know he's the very first Christian on his side of the family. She's the first one on hers, and they've got a son, and they haven't they don't have any clue like what 
how do I, uh, how do, what do I do? Like, what am I supposed to do? Do we pray? Do we read the Bible? Mm. Um, and so, you know, having, having our elders visit these folks, you know, and, and just engage them and, and answer their questions and encourage them, um, is just a huge way, uh, you know, that we try to, you know, help people along because we realize that, you know, it's not the norm for churches to expect families to do this kind of thing. It should be, mm-hmm. but it isn't. Um, you know, in a lot of churches, it's the youth group, and there's not a whole lot of expectation on the parents, which leads to the bad, um, mm-hmm. you know, to the bad results that we mentioned earlier. So, I mean, one of the main things that I think an ordinary means of grace type church like like Exile uh, would do is to encourage that kind of thing one on one by means of pastoral elder visitation. Mm-hmm. Good. A um, couple more, couple more questions. Well, I've I've one other question, and then I have a little bit of rapid fire for you um, okay. before we close out the podcast. I, how how much is this is a completely different track? So we're just get our mind down a different alley here. But what does um, what does it mean to a non Christian that Jesus is King now? How do you how do you see that playing out? Particularly, I think in the way that a Christian views a non-Christian, or that a Christian speaks to a non-Christian. But do you, do you see that as as significant? Yeah, I think that um, you know that one of the main ways that it that that kind of statement and dynamic applies is just on the individual level. Um, who is calling the shots in your life? Who are you living for? Who's marching orders uh, do you accept and uh, and implement in your life are you just living the american dream trying to you know trying to climb that ladder or get that better car remodel your kitchen or is there something more substantial that uh that that gets you out of bed in the morning uh if jesus is king and in two kingdoms people believe that jesus is the king over everything we just say that he rules the two kingdoms uh, differently for different ends and by different means. But, but Jesus is the king of everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think one way to challenge, especially in a place like Seattle, where people are very affluent and, and driven and, uh, you know, and, you know, just incredibly, incredibly busy with, with life and work. And, you know, we've got Microsoft and Boeing and, you know, Costco and all these businesses up here. Um, you know, people need to be challenged, you know, just by, you know, the, the, the question really, you know, really, is that really what life is all about is finishing up that project at Microsoft and, and getting a raise at the end of the year, or is there something more? And this is also a very spiritual place to live, you know, at, at the same time that it's very kind of white collar and, and affluent. It's also a very, very spiritual place. People are very open to spiritual things. And so uh, I think challenging people with the idea of Jesus' kingship um, is, is a way that we can engage them and challenge them about their priorities and, and their idols. Okay, good. Um, the uh, rapid fire for you. All right. Okay, so should a Christian, uh, should a Christian vote? Um, if he wants to. Okay. Would there, would there be a case that a Christian shouldn't vote? I wouldn't say there would be a case where a Christian shouldn't vote, but I mean, there could be a case where if a Christian has no desire to vote, he shouldn't feel sinful about it. Okay. Um, should a Christian serve in government? 
Sure. Yeah, I have no problem with that. If he if he if that's what he feels called to, um, I think that that'd be a great thing. Okay. How about picketing an abortion clinic? Yeah. If if um, yeah if if he feels called to to do that, then I don't think there's any reason why he shouldn't be able to. Okay. He can't blow him up. He can't blow him up, but he could pick, he could picket him. Peaceful. I, I think civil disobedience actually in, in certain conditions is all right, provided it's nonviolent and other a couple of other conditions, but picketing an abortion clinic, um, I have no problem with the Christian doing that, and of course that would be the Christian answer to that question that people would expect. Mm-hmm. So just to stir the pot, I'll also say that if a Christian has no desire when invited to come along to that rally, and he says, no, thank you, I'm not interested, I think that's perfectly okay too. Okay, so you think there's a... There's... No imposing my own, my own feelings on you. No, I think, I, I, I mean, I think, yeah, we need to distinguish between, let's say, the act of abortion, which is an immoral act, and the solution to that, which is a highly political, nuanced thing that Christians may disagree about. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But which is certainly affected, though, by the, by the people who are getting out there and being the physical presence in, you know, on streets in D.C. or what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, how about, uh, should Christians start hospitals? Yeah, sure. Um, I don't think a church as such has any business starting a hospital um, because my church is governed, as are all Reformed churches, by Scripture, and Scripture doesn't teach me how to start a hospital. But if we have rich people in our church who want to endow, you know, or make make gifts toward um, starting a hospital, uh, there's no two-kingdom person out there who's going to have any kind of objection to that. Objection to doing it. But it's, but it's a separate issue. It's not a... It's not a uh, it's not a, an ecclesiastical issue, a kingdom of Christ issue. It's a, it's a common issue, and Christians, if they can, I think it would be great for them to be involved in that. Can I can I interject a question here? Because sure. I think that this is this is helpful. Um, but I I'm um, it helped me to hear wh- how you'd respond to this, Jason. How would, in your view, a Christian in their Christian growth as a disciple of Christ? be alerted by the church through its teaching, through its making of disciples, through its ordinary means ministry, how would a disciple of Christ, in your view, become aware of the kinds of cultural callings that God would place on them? So is that a proper subject of preaching, or do we do that some other way in the church? How do we, how do we see disciples made who take that citizenship in this world seriously so that they're, I don't know what the word you want to use is, motivated, inspired. They're, they're thinking about if I'm a rich person, there's probably something I should do with my money besides bless the the, the church with it, but also maybe I, I would do a hospital or maybe I'd become a politician or whatever. So how do you see that happening? How does a William Wilberforce get raised up by the church? Well, I mean, a good way to answer that question, uh, maybe you won't think it's a good way, but a, a way that I like to, to address those kinds of issues is let's pick a cultural issue that you don't care about or that you're not concerned with or that you think is no problem. But I, let's say I'm your pastor, let's say I think that Nike, the, the shoe company, is, is demonic, almost as demonic as Mark Driscoll thinks Avatar is. Right. And that it's because of their exploitation of third world labor right, uh, right. And, and, and all of that. 
So if I would it, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't okay? mean specifics. I, I mean, how do we? How in your mind do we? I, I'm not concerned. I, I, I think I get where you're going, which is why I cut you off. Which is just that I don't, I don't want to put a specific issue necessarily before people. Although I did, I should take that back because I publicly have asked people, um, you know, if slavery was an issue that Christians should have spoken out about. Mm-hmm. Um, sexual trafficking is an issue that that Christians should speak out about. Not the church's church, but you know what I'm saying is, as individual Christians and as as we're able um, in our callings to to right. deal with that. Um, so you know, it, with the right stance. Um, but I, I guess I'm trying to figure out um, what are the range of how do we bring the range of issues that people should be thinking about the ways in which the application of love your neighbor. Yeah, Both well, I, you know, I, what I do, what, I mean, I, I take some shots in the book about uh, on the issue of application and preaching. And, and what I don't mean is that we can never make application. What I mean is uh, we have to be very careful as ministers who speak on behalf of Christ, you know, how yep. specific can I be with, with my mm-hmm. congregation? What right. I do a lot of times is I ask, you know, usually at the end of the sermon or sometimes throughout it, I'll ask, you know, some some challenging questions about, and not just about stuff that I know people are going to agree with, like, don't you think abortion's bad? Um, but I'll ask questions about, like, do you, are you working too much? Are you buying into, um, are you buying into the, the American dream and, and calling it the gospel? Uh, are you justifying your, um, your absence out of the house uh, for 75 hours a week because you're just trying to provide for your family by, you know, getting another boat? Um, you know, so that's one way that people, in a, I think, non-violating of the two kingdoms, you know, manner, can be challenged on things. Um, but I think, I think that w- Christians are, like anyone else, we are just incredibly kind of blinded by our own hot-button issues. And so it's okay to talk about, isn't it horrible that X amount of uh, unborn children are aborted uh, every week in the U.S. And you can say that and get nods of affirmation and, 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 and slaps on the back after the sermon. But if you mention that the same amount of uh, innocent, just as innocent people are uh, being killed in the war on terror, um, not Americans, but, but uh, Iraqis or Afghans, you can't say that because that's, you're not allowed to say that. You're violating the uh, the two kingdoms there. You're you're bringing politics into the pulpit. You know, so it's very very tricky how to how mm-hmm. to bring people's attention to certain things. Um, uh, part of part of me wants to just answer people's own awareness of the world, their own study, uh, and the books that they read are going to form their opinions about what battles to fight um, much more effectively than I can. I guess I'm more I'm I'm a little bit meta above that. I'm sorry, I'm not putting the question very well. I'm concerned about the discipleship of people such that they do what you just talked about. That they recognize that there are uh, there's a, a calling that God might have for them as an individual Christian or as a collection of Christians, not the church as church, um, that they ought to be exploring, that they ought to be thinking about, that they ought to be engaged with, that there may be something socially or politically that God might want to call them to and they should mm-hmm. – Give earnest exploration to that. Maybe, but that in itself, it, it, it seems to me, 
has to somehow come into play in our discipleship of people. And maybe that's what you're saying, is just by asking questions and making people think, it sends them back to, oh, how am I loving my neighbor? And what would that look like for me, given my gifts and abilities and passions and things like that? Maybe that's, maybe that's it's, it's indirect, maybe. Yeah, and it probably would happen more on, a le- on the level of either discipleship or even Sunday school. If, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more liberal with the topics that I'll allow into discussion if we're having a Sunday school lecture as opposed to if I'm, um, you know, preparing a sermon. Um, so I think maybe, you know, when it comes to one-on-one discipleship, if somebody has a question in Sunday school or, um, or in a Bible study or one-on-one about, hey, I really feel God's calling me to, you know, to address this issue. I, I've got this money. I want to I give it to, uh, you know, to the startup of this, of this hospital or, or I want to get involved in this or that, you know, fight or, or, or you know, cultural issue. What do you think about that? Um, you know, those kinds of things I think would be addressed somewhere outside of the sermon. Okay. Um, but but okay. I do think that I do think that the church and and the minister can 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 help people in that regard. But it's mostly going to be them coming to me, as opposed to me bringing what I consider to be the hot button issues that need to be addressed to people. Because hmm. that's that, that's where it gets a bit trickier. Because what if I think that. The, the Nike issue is a bigger issue than the gay marriage issue. Right, um, right. I, if I do, and you don't want to probably... violate people's consciences and things, you exactly. know. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You don't want to do the Romans 14 thing in the wrong way. Right. Where you're imposing, right. you know, something yeah. on people. They standards fall before God themselves. Yeah. Yeah, That's helpful. exactly. Well, Jason, thank you so much for, uh, thanks for writing the book, <clears throat> and thanks for coming back on the podcast. You're welcome. And, uh, Anytime, we'll, guys. We'll, we'll have you back on. We love having you All on, right. talking to you, and um, really, uh, again, thank you, uh, thank you for doing this. Well, uh, it's my pleasure. Anytime you want to chat, I'd love to do it. Okay. Well, this has been uh, the March podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. As always, you can find us on the web at ordinarymeans.com. Uh, there, please uh, leave your comments, suggestions, questions uh, on our blog, and. Um, May the Lord richly bless you as you pursue him through his ordinary means. 